0: Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we had better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright police from pulling the wall on us. Painting and taking on all the plates to pay control. troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Succeeding eyes do their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt to so grab a shovel and dig We all know that uh, politicians across the political spectrum right now have decided that big tech is a giant problem and that regulation is needed to fix whatever they think is wrong, which isn't always coherent and often is in direct conflict with what others think is the problem. However, there is one area that many politicians seem to have come around to agree on that they can and should regulate more transparency, especially with regards to how these companies handle content moderation and forcing them to reveal uh, all sorts of aspects of their content moderation policies and how it all works. And in theory... Transparency is great. For years, in fact, I've advocated for more transparency from companies and celebrated when those companies have become more transparent and often criticized them when they're not as transparent as they should be, especially around things like transparency reports, which is a concept that Google pioneered and other companies eventually got around to doing, though sometimes grudgingly. So in theory, I should be happy about regulations at the state and federal level, not to mention internationally, that seek to mandate transparency. Yet, as I've written on TechDirt, mandated transparency, I think, is dangerous and problematic in many, many different ways. I have three big reasons that I think this and a whole bunch of little reasons uh, to be concerned about. About These transparency mandates Uh, and I'll just run through very, very quickly. First, these companies are all really different and also very dynamic and it's almost impossible to craft a transparency mandate that is reasonable for all of these different companies and one that can make sense as those companies constantly need to adjust and adapt. Second, I think that the mandates are usually written by people who don't actually understand how any of this works. And many of the proposed mandates are written in ways that actually would help malicious actors and hurt the ability of companies to actually respond to and deal with these bad actors. But the biggest thing to me is that many of these transparency mandates are really backdoor attempts to regulate editorial discretion, either by making it much more expensive in both time and resources to not act in the way that politicians want, or just by imposing some sort of regulatory risk to anyone who wants to approach things in a different and maybe more innovative and perhaps more useful and practical way. Unfortunately, uh, there has been a lot of interest in these kinds of transparency mandates, and in fact, courts that have been reviewing uh, both of the extremely problematic Texas and Florida content moderation laws, which we've discussed at length, have argued that the transparency elements of those laws are perfectly constitutional. And when they say that, they usually point to a single Supreme Court ruling from 1985, uh, Zauderer versus the Office of Disciplinary Counsel, which many people now claim puts forth a test making burdensome disclosure requirements okay under the First Amendment. Indeed, uh, among many policymakers, academics, and judges, they seem to think that Zauderer gives them free reign for transparency mandates. Law professor Eric Goldman has just released a new paper that hopefully throws a lot of cold water on this belief and explains why that case doesn't say what people seem to think uh, and why many of these transparency mandates raise serious First Amendment issues. So, Eric, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: So let's start with the Zauderer case itself. Uh, can you just give a short description of what that case was about?
1: Uh, sure. Uh, we're going to trip over the name a fair amount. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to call it Zauderer, uh, but I have okay. no uh, reason to believe that my pronunciations ain't better than anyone else's. Um, <laughs> and the case is part of a longer arc that um, uh, ran through the Supreme Court from basically the 1970s to 1990s, where the Supreme Court incrementally kept adopting uh, higher levels of protection for what it called commercial speech. With um, a flagship case in this uh, was right around 1990, I'm sorry, 1980 in the uh, Central Hudson case, where the court adopted an intermediate scrutiny level of um, a review for uh, regulations of commercial speech. Um, it, then sweeping through from the 1970s to 1990s, they applied this principle to uh, professional speech by various professional actors, such as lawyers. Um, and so the Zaudura case is just one of several that came out over that time span, um, applying uh, heightened constitutional protection for commercial speech by many act- entities, including professional uh, service providers. The particular issue uh, in the Zaudura case evolved advertising run by a lawyer um, that was designed to uh, solicit um, uh, clients who were uh, uh, going to be hiring the lawyer on contingency fee. A lot of the uh, opinion is devoted towards um, discussing how the uh, the state bar could regulate the dissemination of the advertising in the first place. And basically, much of that gets struck down. The remainder, however, involves that there were particular pieces where The state bar felt that the disclosure was incomplete and required that there would be additional disclosures made in order for the uh, contingency fee oriented ad to run. And the court held that uh, those disclosure requirements were subject to a lower level of constitutional scrutiny than the central Hudson test. Um, and therefore, in those particular cases, the uh, the regulations were upheld. So the state bar could require the disclosures of certain pieces of information about um, the services being offered by the attorney, but they couldn't ban the advertising generally or otherwise restrict it because that was uh, governed by the more restrictive test.
0: And and so my understanding of the case is that it's it's really one of you know. It 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 makes sense in a lot of ways that this is this is about a lawyer advertising, um, you know, their services, and um, the law was effectively requiring them to to you know uh, reveal the details of of you know how how their contingency fee process works, and it, and in effect, it's sort of a consumer protection kind of thing, um, and and so. You know, my read on it is they're saying you know, it, it's, it's like truth and advertising kinds of, of laws that that are that don't violate the First Amendment because you're effectively protecting consumers with it. Is that, is that a fair read of the case?
1: Yeah, and I can sharpen it up a little bit because um, uh, I uh, co-author a, a textbook on advertising and marketing law. Um, so for me, regulations of advertising fit into that genre of, adverta- uh, of, of regulation – um, that is a really vast and important body of, of law. Um, and when I read the Zardura case again uh, this uh, summer, um, having spent now the last decade working on this casebook, Um, it became obvious that the Zardura case was really just a straightforward false advertising case. What the state bar was claiming is that the omission of key information to the consumers was itself deceptive. And we have an entire body of law about deceptive omissions in advertising. And this case just fits straight into it. And if it's viewed that way, then the transparency requirements are really not that. They're really just a standard anti-consumer protection I'm sorry, uh, uh, consumer protection law, um, anti-deception uh, law that right. says you have to fill in these gaps if you're going to run the advertising. Otherwise, it's confusing consumers.
0: And 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 in fact, you know, uh, if you look at the case, the, the part that is now used as a sort of defense of transparency requirements, you know, it, they almost do it breezily, right? There, there's very little detail in, in in the ruling. They just kind of, you know, kind of rush by it as if it's fairly obvious that that this is okay because i think you know i i i I, if i'm reading you correctly and just reading over the case myself it feels like you know to to the supreme court who's arguing this it it's a straightforward application of of you know, false advertising, truth in advertising, kind, kinds of ideas, and and not allowing the com- the in this case the lawyers to be deceptive in in their advertising, and yet somehow that's turned into this this concept of like the a test for for when mandated disclosures are okay. Is is, is that your read on it as well?
1: Uh, yes, I hundred percent agree with that. And let's just reinforce a couple of those points. Um, first of all, much of the Zadura opinion is focused on the uh, the restrictions on attorney advertising in the first instance. So I don't want to say this was an afterthought, but clearly the energy in the opinion was invested on clearing out the attempts to regulate advertising by lawyers. Um, and so this was just um, uh, given a lot less uh, consideration than that broader principle. In um, the way I quote the actual discussion about the tests articulated by the Zadour opinion uh, regarding transparency, it's like 150 words. And these 150 words have become the the grounds that all these regulators have planted seeds into to sprout these uh, laws that may be great, they may be sensorial, they may violate other constitutional principles. But the Zadour case is so uh, brief in its description of the test and why it adopted the provisions it did that it gives this open door for these regulations to, to just flow right through. Um, without seemingly a constitutional barrier. And the last thing I'll point out is that we know that that there's just this undeniable pressure to try and censor content across the entire um, uh, uh, country. And the Zadur case has become so celebrated in part because it's basically a win for the pro-censorship crowd. It says, hey, if you can fit into this particular test, you basically get no meaningful constitutional scrutiny. So all the censors said, yippee, this is exactly <laughs> what I've been looking for, a tool to advance right. my censorship. Here you go.
0: And and. And so, so what is the test exactly, right? It, it, there, there's a sort of multi-part test and, and, and uh, you know, in your paper, you go through it, but can, can we just describe it for the listeners? Yeah. And
1: I got to tell you, this is actually perhaps the most controversial part of the paper because nobody <laughs> can quite agree exactly what the test is or how uh, to define any of the elements. So here's how I interpreted this, looking at all the Supreme Court jurisprudence over the last 37 years that have discussed the Zauderer case, which is a surprisingly small number for in a case with such import, um, basically what the uh, what the uh, uh, Supreme Court did in the 1985 opinion is it said there are four preconditions to get this expedited constitutionality review. It has to be evolving a uh, de- uh, regulation involving uh, the uh, the uh, dissemination of advertising. It has to Uh, require the production of uncontroversial uh, information. It has to require the disclosure of purely factual information. And the fourth element is that the disclosures have to relate to the terms on which the uh, advertiser is offering its goods or services. So advertising, uh, uncontroversial disclosures, purely factual disclosures, and uh, and, uh, disclosures about the offer terms. If those elements are not met, any one of them, Zadur does not apply, and in all likelihood, then, you should go to the standard test for commercial speech regulation, which is the central Hudson case, which applies intermediate scrutiny. In many cases in the editorial transparency world, I think actually strict scrutiny should apply. But the idea is you don't get the fast lane if you don't meet all four of those elements. Now, if you do meet the elements, the the constitutional review looks for three things. It looks to say whether or not the law is unjustified, which we all know is a completely meaningless standard. It looks to see if the disclosures are, quote, unduly burdensome. And then the third piece is to look to see whether or not there's basically consumer deception because the information is lacking. Um, So... Uh, if a law can show that it's justified or not unjustified, if it's not unduly burdensome, and if there's consumer deception that is trying to fit, then it's constitutional um, if it qualified for the Z test.
0: so so here's the thing. you know hearing all that and, and and thinking through all of that, I do not understand how anyone can say that bills that mandate transparency requirements for social media, could possibly fit that test because it's not about advertising. It's, it is often controversial. It's not just factual information. Like it doesn't seem to meet any of this, let, let alone, you know, you're saying it has to meet all four of the the, the prongs of, of the test. Uh, and yet these mandates on social media content moderation rules and, and transparency don't, don't seem to meet any of them. I mean, especially they're, they're about something entirely different. It's not about, you know, truth in advertising at all. So, so how, how is it that that people are are insisting that these mandates are legal because of the, this case?
1: So that really is like the great bait and switch of the Zauderer test. <laughs> it's actually a really fascinating process because the test is designed to present. Misleading omissions to consumers, but in fact, the way that um, the pro-censorship crowd quotes it, they usually quote it incompletely, basically making their own material deceptive omissions when they represent <laughs> what the case stands for. It's like the great irony of the Zauderer case. Um, but I, I don't know what to say, Mike. You, you've like hit your nail on the head. When anyone looks at the Zauderer case and what it's what the Supreme Court's done with it over the last thirty-seven years, it seems. Obvious that the editorial transparency requirements in the Florida and Texas bills, the ones that are coming out in California and New York, and all the other ones that have been proposed, don't even come close. And they wouldn't be meaningful if they became close because of the fact that the, the law governs this thing called advertising, and many of the things that um, uh, uh, that uh, the disclosures want aren't advertising. So just as a mismatch from the very structure of the laws to the test. Um, and yet, because the because there's such a tech clash, because everyone uh, is wants to beat up on big tech, because censors are going to censor, uh, the Zardur case is like the darling of uh, that crowd.
0: And, and so one other thing that I think is really important to dig into a little bit here, which is... I mean, the four states that, that, that we've mentioned in this conversation, you have Florida, you have Texas, you have California, and New York. Now, those states, as most people know, don't seem to agree on much, if anything. And in fact, all of those states seem to to put forth laws that often are in direct conflict with each other. And that's true even in in, in some of these social media cases. And yet, all four of them uh, are social media laws that these, these uh, states are, are putting forth, but all four four of these are sort of relying on this case and this test to justify um, the, the sort of transparency parts of the laws that, that they're putting forth, even though they're in conflict in terms of what it is that they're, they're trying to do. And so I think that's worth exploring. And I think, I mean, you, you hinted at, at the reasons why earlier, which is like, this has become this sort of free pass uh to to allow government officials to sort of put put in place the the censorship regime that they want um but i mean do you have any thoughts on the on the fact that that you have these these states that people don't think of as as being in agreement on anything yet all using this same law as kind of the justification for or the the same case and test as the justification for their laws?
1: Uh, Yeah, we certainly know that censorship is bipartisan. But what what we've also discovered is that the tech lash is bipartisan. And both political parties see payoff to beating up on, quote, big tech. Their constituents love it. Um, And so as a result, it's an easy bipartisan proposal to say that um, uh, a legislature is going to enact a law that that dictates more editorial transparency. That's a that has bipartisan appeal. Uh, uh, The law in California, for example, basically passed without opposition um, because of the fact that both sides are like, yeah, let's let's do more of this. And it's really a cautionary tale. If Zaudur allows these kinds of laws, then they will sweep the nation. Um, and there will be unre, you know, what we've seen today is just the, the, the leading edge of that wave of, of regulation. Um, legislatures come up with some very crafty ways to advance their sensorial goals, all claiming it's only about transparency. So. That's why I wrote this paper this summer. I really didn't have time to write it, but it was clear to me that if um, uh, the Supreme Court doesn't address this outdoor issue and put some limits that curb its applicability to editorial transparency, the game is going to be over on this battleground um, uh, in ways that uh, will reshape the internet.
0: Well, and one thing you note in the paper, which I thought was interesting, which is that you know, in in one of the the Supreme Court cases that um, that that uh, follows on the, the Zaudera test, which is the the Milovitz case, um, you have Clarence Thomas, who is actually questions the validity of of Zardera and 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 questions whether or not that case that part of the case was was rightly decided, and and suggests that it should be revisited. And yet, I, I feel pretty certain that. You know, if if these current laws are tested before him, he will he will completely ignore (laughs) his previous concerns about. I mean, maybe, but but I feel like he's he seems likely to completely ignore his his former concerns. Um, Is you know, do you think is it is it just going to be accepted that this is this is the way it works and the Supreme Court is going to ignore how different these other laws are than than? The, than the Zadura case? I, the
1: short answer is we just don't really know. Zadur has been to the Supreme Court so rarely where they've mm. actually formed a majority discussion about what it means that um, we're operating in basically a black box. Um, and we have, of course, the, the challenge that someone like Justice Thomas might have switched his views pre and post MAGA um, and so now maybe Justice Thomas circa 2012 doesn't have anything to say to Justice Thomas 2022. Um, so, uh, so you know, even getting tea, a read on the tea leaves for the justices who have spoken about Zad-Dur, um leaves us with a black box. So we're, we, we need the Supreme Court to speak up here. But as always with a situation like this in the modern court, we might be really bummed at the end of that when we hear what they have to say. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um so and i i do want to have a slightly broader discussion as well and and take sort of a slightly wider view here and, and get back to the point that i raised in, in the introduction which is that when you talk to some people about it um they they don't they don't feel too alarmed by this right their argument is that transparency is good and more transparency is better and and again like I, you know, inherently, I sort of recognize that. Though, as I raised in the intro, I I think there are concerns with the mandated aspect of it. Um, But so, so, how how do you respond to people who say, you know, what this isn't so bad. It's just asking for some transparency.
1: Yeah, and I, uh, you know, you and I are extremely close in terms of our um, uh, policy stances on this question. In general, I favor voluntary disclosures by uh, uh, all businesses. About what they're doing, why they're doing it, I favor them to explaining their policies. I favor them explaining their judgments as applied to individual customers, Um, and uh, I favor them um, uh, being uh, accountable in the marketplace for those disclosures. So, you know, uh, more transparency is better, I think, to the marketplace in general when it's voluntarily provided. And I think that there's plenty of circumstances where where mandatory transparency helps the marketplace in other circumstances um, that uh, um, uh, that uh, uh, don't raise the kinds of concerns that editorial transparency raises. So I would like to make a distinction. Say I, I'm I'm agnostic about the applicability of Zadur to other forms of compelled commercial disclosure, I want to cleave off the editorial transparency piece because of the unique properties of of implementing compelled disclosures in the context of publication decisions. And so, um, you know, I'm pro-voluntary transparency, I'm uh, uh, pro-mandatory transparency in many other kinds of commercial circumstances. I'm anti-mandatory editorial transparency because of, as you said very eloquently at the beginning of this talk, one is that the uh, the obligations send signals to the publishers what kinds of editorial decisions they make, knowing that they're going to be scrutinized by regulators who are going to be looking to, um, uh, to enforce their political and partisan views on uh, the publisher. And then- The second-order issue here that really gets forgotten by most of the people who are proponents of editorial transparency, they're such a fan of the idea that more information will be better. They forget that the enforcement process is an incredibly intrusive um, uh, 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 invasion of publishers – editorial processes. Basically, what you'll have to actually validate the information that's in any of the disclosures is some government official coming and saying, I want to know exactly what you did. I want to know why you did it. And I'm going to come and second guess it based on my political or partisan agenda to raise concerns about the the disclosures that you made. So basically, the the enforcement mechanism, which gets just forgotten by most of the proponents, is actually incredibly weaponizable, and we've already seen that to date. I don't know if we're going to get there or not, but the 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 Paxson, uh, uh Twitter um, uh, fracas is a good example of a situation where we've seen how. Editorial transparency is weaponizable by government officials to advance their partisan purposes, to send signals to the publishers, make choices that favor my partisan team and, and uh, hurt the other team. Um, and so I think everyone should be opposed to that. I feel like the bipartisan consensus when it comes to mandatory transparency is we should not be doing anything that allows partisan enforcers to dictate terms to publishers.
0: Yeah. And, and and so, I mean, you brought it up. So let, let's just dive in there. The, the Paxton Twitter situation, um, you know, what happened? What happened there?
1: So uh, this is one of the aftermaths of uh, the uh, Trump deplatforming. Um, so uh, in the wake of the January 6th insurrection, uh, uh, Facebook and Twitter both, quote, deplatformed Trump. Um, by uh, uh, ending his accounts. Um, And Paxton uh, took that as a personal uh, vendetta to punish the services for that decision to remove his boy from their publication um, uh, uh, services. Um, And so uh, Paxton opened up an investigation into Twitter for standard consumer protection violations, basically They engaged in unfair competition somehow because they deplatformed Trump and then issued an order to Twitter, basically saying, You have to give me every scrap of information that you have about how you make your editorial decisions. Now, we might say that there are circumstances where Twitter should be accountable for false advertising about it, uh, about the services that it offers. But what Paxton was doing is saying, I want to get my investigators into your publication decision process. And I want to second guess every single publication decision that you make. And the way that Paxton framed his order, it wasn't just tell me about the past. It said, and if you make any new uh, editorial decisions, you have to send me a copy of those as well. Um, to which this is basically putting Paxton or his team in the center of, of every editorial decision that that Twitter makes. And that's untenable. That is the government basically uh, saying, we are going to monitor your editorial decision so much um, that we can come and enforce anytime we don't like uh, one of the decisions that you make. Um, okay. And that's the future of editorial transparency enforcement. And that's the piece that I feel like the proponents have missed.
0: And, and 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 just to clarify, because I'm not sure if we mentioned it or not, Ken Paxton is the attorney general of, of Texas. So. Uh, yeah, thank you. I'm sorry. I thought Paxton would be so famous
1: in our circles uh, because he's led a very colorful life um, and yes. continues to defy um, – uh, uh, justice, uh, with, um, a prosecution that's been pending against him for, um, uh, for, it seems like almost a decade. Um, so yeah. he can, shows up in the news a lot, but the point is that he is on team MAGA, um, uh, for this purpose. And so assume yeah. that you have someone who's decided they're going to advance the Trump political agenda using the power of a state attorney general to target, uh, um, uh, publication decisions by internet, uh, services. And that's the kind of thing that sounds like censorship to a Gen Xer like me, like not even close. You cannot do that. And that's exactly where the battleground is today.
0: And, and, and one thing that I keep talking about and and trying to get people to recognize, like I keep hearing from people who are saying like, Oh, you know, again, like what's the big deal? We're just asking for transparency about, about the rules. And so we're just trying to make sure that that it's fair. And and the comparison that I keep making that I I think is important and, and that, I I hope people realize this is how would you feel if the same sort of transparency rules about editorial decision were applied to the New York Times or to CNN and, you know, someone like Ken Paxton saying like, New York Times, you need to show me the notes from all of your editorial meetings in which you decide which stories you're going to publish and which stories you're not going to pursue and which stories make it to the front page and which stories don't. And I think most people, if you heard that, if you heard of a government official, especially one that is, you know, heavily politically partisan motivated, saying that it would get to, you know, get all of the details from internal uh, editorial meetings would recognize the fairly significant First Amendment problems with that. And yet, for some reason, lots of people seem to think that in this case, it's somehow different. And, And- I mean, do you have any sense as to why why people don't naturally make that connection and and why so many people are just OK with it when it comes to social media?
1: Um, <laughs> it sounds like the subject of another podcast, basically, <laughs> it's the entire psychology of the tech lash. <laughs> um, and some people are just ends justify the means. You know, we hate big tech. We'll do whatever it takes to take them out. We don't care what corners being cut. Other people are just pro-censorship. They don't care um, about uh, who gets censored. They just favor it. Um, And then the, the audience I'm most interested in is the people who would say that, such uh, editorial transparency laws impl- applied against traditional publishers um, would be uh, would be inappropriate, but somehow they're okay online. Um, and we've seen so many justifications for why online publication decisions are different than offline ones. They typically involve uh, usually, I think, two main arguments. One is that the publication processes are different, um, that publishers usually vet then publish, whereas many online um, publishers uh, publish then vet. Um, And the second is simply this notion of market power, that the big Internet services have so much market power um, that uh, they pose a qualitatively different risk than traditional media. That latter piece is just not really credible whatsoever, um, because uh, traditionally media uh, industries have always consolidated around a small number of big players. Um, So there really isn't anything different on that front. And yet uh, that tends to be another anchor for people to make the distinctions.
0: Um, you know, one thing that I've been wondering too, and, uh, and, and maybe this is asking you to get too, uh, too much looking into the psychology of, of some of your colleagues. It feels like to, to, to me in, in academia, there's a push to, to support these kinds of transparency mandates in part, because it would make, you know, I, I can see for, for academics, there's a lot of value in suddenly having access to all of this data to, to release a bunch of papers on it. Do, is, is the, do you think that's driving any, any of this at all? Uh,
1: you know, uh, there's a whole variety of camps uh, in academia, and so it's a little hard to have a one-size-fits-all descriptor sure. of why they might support a particular position. I will say that uh, there's definitely a camp that um, – is simply anti-big tech, and justify the means. Uh, whatever it takes to demolish the uh, existing uh, power structures is, is a good thing. Um, consequences uh, for future the future are damned. Um, but I think that there are a number of academics who generally support researcher access to data about the internet services operations, which is something I also support voluntarily. I think that it would be great if the services could find ways to work with academics to be able to study what um, uh, is going on um, on their service. Um, I do have issues with that being mandated for all the reasons we just discussed. Um, but uh but for a researcher, they don't care if it's voluntary or mandated. They just want the data. Um, and right. so anything that's a barrier to getting the data um Uh, is, uh, is, uh, is a good thing. And I think there might be one other camp that's worth noting, which is that um, it poses some really interesting analytical questions. How far can legislatures go against these constitutional frontiers? And so I think there's some uh, academics who just enjoy the kind of the sport of thinking that through, um, unfortunately, it's not a hypothetical. It's not an ivory tower question. It's a real-life question that we're wrestling with today. And the stakes of those questions are extraordinarily high. So for me, um, I'm much more interested in not thinking about what are the frontiers. I'm thinking about making sure that we don't uh, uh, give the sensors a tool to wipe out the internet.
0: Yeah. So I want to go back to to one aspect of of all of this that I think also is is not as well understood, but I think is really, really important. We talked about the idea of like, you know, politicians or, you know, Ken Paxton example of like being able to review every sort of editorial decision or get access to editorial notes and all these kinds of um, issues but i also think and i think we we've sort of mentioned it in passing but i think it's worth exploring more deeply this idea of when you have mandated disclosures um beyond you know the the sort of uh you know the the pro trans the the pro transparency mandate people are like well you know it doesn't impact decisions we're just asking you for the the details on it but i actually think it's important to recognize that it can absolutely impact the the decisions that companies are making and I'll, I'll point to the new york transparency law which effectively says you have to um uh I, I forget the exact details of the wording of the law but it's basically like you have to e- explain and, and put some transparency reporting on on ha- how much hate speech you've come across and how much you took action on um and i think that the reality is that just you know, being mandated to report this stuff changes for a lot of companies will change how they deal with it because, you know, they want the transparency reports to look good. They they want to make sure that, you know, when the media gets a hold of the transparency reports, if, you know, you know, with the hate, hate speech example, if they show that they whatever they received, I don't know. Whatever you know x number of thousands of of reports of hate speech and they only took action on ten percent of them, then suddenly you're going to get headlines about this and that this or that platform is not you know is not effectively cracking down on on hate speech or whatever um, you know how much do these you know or, or do we have examples of how much these um Transparency requirements can actually impact behavior in terms of how the how these websites handle content moderation and editorial decision making.
1: Um, I don't know that we've measured that to date, but but we do know that that effect is real. And in fact, it's usually the intended effect by the regulators, that they're not simply passing these laws because they want to improve the marketplace mechanism. Sending laws to send signals to the services, this is what you should be doing. This is what we will be paying attention to. Um, And this is what we will be handing over to enforcement uh, actors uh, to pursue. Um, So uh, uh, you pointed out the New York example. It's a really great example. Um, The the regulated uh, conduct there is uh, actually, quote, hateful conduct, um, and it unquestionably covers constitutionally protected speech. There's no doubt about it that some of the things that the law thinks are hateful conduct that need to be disclosed. are going to be constitutionally protected now the hard part for a service is that they have to play simultaneously to two different partisan agendas the primary partisan agenda in new york will be that we want to see less hateful conduct on your service so if that number is trending up or if your uh, editorial policies are not vigorous enough against hateful conduct then that will become the basis for investigations for enforcement actions and for the naming and shaming type of things that governments love to do um, however not all of New York is a quote uh uh, uh blue uh, uh color. Um there are red uh, uh, colored uh uh enforcers in in New York as well. Um yes. and they might be looking to see uh given that it covers constitutionally protected hateful conduct, they might be looking to see that number uh being uh going up. In other words, they might say if you're taking too many steps to regulate hateful conduct, you're screening out constitutionally protected material, and that will become the basis of their enforcement action, their investigations, their naming and shaming. And so a simple disclosure about something like hateful conduct exposes services to criticisms and enforcement on both sides, both sides saying, we want more and less simultaneously. And that gets to the untenable nature of the position that the service is in. And it takes us back, if you go all the way back to our earlier discussion about Zadur, it takes us back to the point that it is only supposed to govern, quote, uncontroversial disclosures. And something like disclosure by hateful conduct, no matter what it does, is going to be controversial. And as a result, that's another way of seeing why Zadur is not the right fit.
0: So do, do you have any idea why I mean both you know both the the 11th circuit ruling around the Florida K Florida law and the 5th circuit ruling around Texas's law although they disagree on on so much you know almost everything else both felt that the transparency uh, requirements of those laws were okay under Zadera. and is there is there a reason why when it seems really really obvious that if you've looked at this Uh, you know, like you have, that it's a totally different scenario and that that test should not apply or or that the test should apply, but it should fail effectively.
1: So some of that might be the fact that there wasn't as much energy invested on this in the litigation um, as the other issues. The other issues are so, uh, in the Florida and Texas laws are so make or break for the internet that those have to be defeated. Um, and. There's only so much space you can take in a brief. Um, And so that means that the amount of words that were dedicated to the transparency piece was pretty small in both cases, um, considering the grand scheme of things. This is not unusual. It goes back to the Zadura case, 150 words about uh, why they adopted their, their expedited, relaxed constitutional scrutiny, when the rest of the opinion was all about the substantive restrictions. Um, so, uh, that may be one explanation, simply that it, it was an easy corner to, um, uh, to not invest in. Um, but if you look at the Levin's opinion, I was just looking at this morning, um, and, uh, basically the court said, uh, that, um, uh, it quoted some language from Zadur, which was fine. And then it said, Zadur doesn't really always apply to advertising. And the the state tells us they're interested in consumer protection. So close enough. And we're not going to discuss any of the other three preconditions. So basically, the court just completely shaved off the entire Zardura test, said, if you half meet one of the four uh, <laughs> preconditions, you're good to go. Um, and that's just, you know, I don't know if the court ran out of time, if the court um, uh, really believes that that's the right analysis, that the court was responding to the, the, uh, the relatively constrained advocacy on the part of the uh, parties. Um, but I mean, you read it, and it's just obviously, on its face, incomplete. And in my opinion, facially wrong, um, but they didn't even really try. And of course, the Fifth Circuit opinion is its own nightmare. Uh, so they were going to uphold the law either way, no matter what it said. Right. They didn't really care what test they needed to invoke to get there.
0: So, so what 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 happens next? I mean, I mean, you know, most of the discussion around like the the Fifth and, and the Eleventh Circuit rulings and, and the likelihood of the Supreme Court reviewing it are more focused, but not so much on the transparency part but, but all the other stuff, the sort of restrictions on, on moderation, um, is, is the transparency part. Do, do you think that will, will get to the Supreme court? Will it get to the Supreme court this round? Will it be, you know, a few years forward is, do do you have any sense of that?
1: Uh, Just to be clear, I am going to be filing a brief to, uh, encourage the Supreme court to grant certiorari on specifically the transparency elements of the 11th circuit opinion. So I, I have a, I have some skin in that particular question. Um, uh, but I do think that they're likely to take it. And the reason why they're likely to take it in the fifth circuit emergency appeal, uh, that went to the Supreme court, uh, asking to restore the injunction when the fifth circuit dissolved the injunction without an opinion. Um, the Supreme court voted five, four to restore the injunction. Uh, but there was a dissent uh, from three of the justices saying, uh, that, uh, 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 they were okay. Letting the injunction, uh, dissolve. Um, and specifically saying, and in part, uh, the transparency piece should be fine per Zadur. Um, and so that was, uh, they then went on to say, and we think that cert should be granted on these questions. So there were already three votes in favor of granting cert on the transparency piece. Uh, from that opinion, you only need four to get the cert. I just feel like there's, you know, just one of the other six judges likely say, you know what, we got to take this part of it too. Um, so I do think that transparency is coming to the Supreme Court this term. Um, and then, as I said, the question is whether or not we'll have an internet afterwards. <laughs>
0: wow, well, well, that's a, that's a fun note to close out the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Listen to this while you can. <laughs> I, I hope
1: your podcast, uh, includes, uh, you know, virtual tissues for your listeners so they can wipe away <laughs> the tears from their eyes. Oh,
0: goodness. All right. Well, I I, I do think this is a really important issue. I think it's one that really hasn't gotten as much attention. Everybody's focused on the other aspects of it, but I think you're right. I think your paper is is fantastic. We'll put a link to it in, in the show notes. I think everyone should... Should read it and really understand it because you know I I really didn't didn't fully understand all this myself either. I knew the transparency elements were were there, but I I didn't realize just how flimsy the the basis was uh, on which so much of this is resting and. You know how many how many different policymakers are kind of rushing through that that little tiny loophole, which they're you know stretching in all sorts of weird and 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 bizarre ways. So I, I think it's it's the the paper is great. It's really really useful in sort of putting putting this forward. I hope that uh, you know along with with your uh, your petition to get them to to hear this part of it. Um, that they will actually understand it (laughs) as as well. Um, We want them not only to
1: understand it, but also to actually apply the precedent as they stated before. Um, And that's where we all get really nervous. Uh, This particular Supreme Court uh, has shown less fidelity to precedent than we've been used to in our lifetimes. Um, and that, that exposes us to a degree of anarchy that makes us uncomfortable. <laughs> oh,
0: goodness. All right. Well, it is something worth following. Uh, and so thank you again for, for writing the paper, for, for educating me on this particular topic and, and for, um, for coming on the podcast and, and being willing to, to talk about it as well. And, uh, for everyone listening, Please let other people know about this. I, I think this is just one of those topics that I think people really need to be aware of um, because it feels like a lot of a lot of um, really bad behaviors being you know pushed or bad ideas are being pushed through this this sort of tiny loophole um, and, and I think understanding that is is really, really important if we're going to protect uh, a, an open internet or what's left of it. <laughs> so uh anyways again thank, thank you so much for, for writing the paper thank you for for joining the podcast uh and uh that's it
1: <laughs> well thank you thank you mike uh for uh, uh spurring this conversation and of course uh guiding it so expertly and thanks to all the listeners for uh suffering uh, through uh some pretty <laughs> tedious discussions about a gen x or uh aged case um And uh, but as you said, um, you know, the fact that hasn't got enough attention um, is something that we all can fix. So thank you for the opportunity to do that.
0: Yeah. And and again, also, I'll say thanks to everyone for listening as well. And we'll be back next week.